You may be seated. I'm wearing my Redemption City camouflage today. <laughs> Just jeans and a head. Uh, <laughs> I thought about that when I got here. I'm like, I blend in with the wall. I blend in with the wall. Before I get started preaching today, I want to give an announcement. Um, we love the Bible at Redemption City Church, which we should. Um, but it's also my desire for us to read through a Bible reading plan every year together. And so we, we've put one or we've chosen one uh, together uh, to, to promote to you. Of course, there's no obligation to do it. Uh, many of you planners already knew last year where you're going this year. I don't want to mess up your plans. But as I was thinking about it, I've spent most of my Christian life um, reading through a one-year Bible reading plan, and three-fourths of the year, you're in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Then you speed through the New Testament. And so this year, I thought, let's just slow it down and read through the, through the New Testament together, one chapter a day, reading and praying through the New Testament, uh, slowing down, consuming, chewing on it, meditating on it. And so, believe it or not, Pat, you can find it at the back table. Did you know that? And, <laughs> surprise, and uh, we want you to go back there to get information. And uh, it'll come out in the weekly emails too. And so please, uh, you could go back there and find it or, or get it on the email. And so let's do that together. It'd be so great. I think it'll enhance our fellowship. So let's pray and jump into God's word this morning. God, we come before you and... This, surf, this service exists for your glory. God, we're here for you. If you, if you had not spoken, if you had not come, we would not gather today. God, if you would not have written your word, I would have nothing to say. And so, God, we need your help. It's clear from Scripture that we need our minds open and our hearts tender to your word. May your Holy Spirit come on us and let us behold glorious things in your truth. God, will you help us to be satisfied in your love so that we do not look to lesser things that are not bread, that are not water. Help us to see that you've invited us to yourself, bread of life, and the living water to find our soul's satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. God, I pray that if any heart in here is far from you, may you give them grace to believe today and leave in life. May you do that. And God, I pray for your people to just, will you create an insatiable hunger for your glory to be seen in their lives and in this city and around the world. May, you, may, you, may our hearts burn within us as we learn the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So during the transatlantic slave trade that lasted for over 400 years, more than 15 million men, women, and children were, who are created in the image of God were victims of this horrific and dark chapter in human history. And in Ghana alone, there were 40 different slave castles, 40 different slave castles around the country, and, and slave castles were a holding cell before they, were be, before they would be shipped off and get their assignment. Each of these castles had a dark, dank, dingy chamber, usually underneath where they were held. And in these chambers was known to be a door of no return, because once you walk through them, you would never be seen again. And slave traders held enslaved people there, and they would have to stay sometimes up to three months before they made the treacherous journey across the Atlantic. Now, at the Elamina slave castle, the most striking just juxtaposition was a chapel right on top of the dungeon. So for over 400 years, many different churches would worship on top of the chamber where the enslaved people were being held 
tortured, and sometimes killed. They forced hundreds, if not thousands, of enslaved people into these tiny dungeons, and they had nowhere to eat, sleep, or relieve themselves. The sounds of the waves taunted them right outside the castle walls, and they rarely got to leave their cells. Diseases were rampant in these conditions, and and the abuses of every kind would happen in this place, and only one in five survived the slave castle to take the journey across the Atlantic. But the waves were not the only haunting sound that they had to deal with. It was reported that both groups of people could hear each other. So as the songs were sung to God and would would rise, they would hear the screams, or or they would hear, the enslaved people would hear the, the songs being lifted. And the worshipers in the chapel would hear the screams in the dungeons beneath their feet. This world is a dark place. And is there a sunrise for those living in the dark is the question. Listen, we have arrived back to the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah today. Elizabeth has given birth to her son and all her relatives have gathered and are rejoicing. And you'll see, if you were to look up at the stages, uh, if you were to look up the stages of a sunrise, the first step after darkness is called astronomical twilight. That's the first stage, which begins with the sky no longer being completely dark, but the sun has not completely risen. And that is what the birth of John the Baptist was to the world. He is not the light of the world, but his birth cracked the darkness with beams of light after a long, dark night. So verse 57 and verse 58, we see the birth of John. It's time for him to be born. The angel's word came true. Every word of the angel's word came true. And apparently Elizabeth stayed in seclusion because the relatives and neighbors had to hear that she had born a son. They heard that she gave birth. So she stayed in secret. And they, and they saw this as it was. Do you hear what it says? That They see that the Lord had shown great mercy on her and they rejoiced with her. And this is in partial fulfillment of what the prophecy was that came to Zechariah in the temple, Gabriel said, and, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. It's happening now. And the Lord's mercy has been running thick through this opening chapter of Luke. Hey, guys, we finished one chapter today. Yeah, that's a big deal. We've been, there's 80 verses in the first chapter of Luke. We're going to be in this book for a while, okay? Just settle in. But we get to finish one today. But the Lord's mercy has been running thick in this opening chapter of the third gospel. And those, these, these events are cosmic in reach. God has personally blessed this family. And how many billions of times had the process of getting pregnant and giving birth happened in the world up until this point? But there could only be one forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he's born in our passage today. And then in verses 59 through 63, on the eighth day, John was circumcised and as was commanded by God. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant back then. And and here I want you to see again, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who we were told in earlier in chapter one were righteous and blameless. We see again their utter devotion to obeying the word of God. We could learn a lot from this couple. Their utter devotion to obeying the letter of the law, and they're doing it again. And, and Elizabeth tells her relatives and neighbors the name of the son, and they reject it. That is strange. I would put these, you say that you have uh, relatives and neighbors that are pushy and hard to deal with, I would put these folks up against any of them. When, like, I get some social anxiety sometimes, okay, when awkward things happen. I have the saying, awkward is awesome. It's not always awesome, okay? Darren, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. I always tell Darren, awkward is awesome. It's not always awesome. If I'm in a room and the mother says, the name of my son is John, and someone says, no, it's not, I'm shrinking to the back, head down. (laughs) Like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. Like, I... 
I got a, I got a thing. They have watches back then. I got a thing. Let's look up at the, uh, I got to go. That's awkward. I'd put these folks up against anybody. And the text doesn't explain how Elizabeth knows that the angel Gabriel told Zechariah the name would be John. But we see that Zechariah in a little bit, a little bit has a writing tablet. And we should think that as Zechariah is deaf and mute for his unbelief, that that writing tablet was smoking between him and Elizabeth over those nine months. They would have been communicating messages after messages. But again, Zechariah and Elizabeth in the naming of John show their utter devotion to the will of God for their son. And many times, the word of God will confront what is customary. What was the problem that the relatives and neighbors had about the naming of John? Because it wasn't tradition to go off names, to go away from names in the family line. That's still a tradition for us today. A lot of people follow names. Uh, I love, like when we were thinking about, uh, I was convinced, I don't know if you guys, uh, for those of you who are parents, when your wife is pregnant or ladies when you're pregnant, you're always guessing what the sex of the baby will be. I was utterly convinced I was going to have two sons. I got two girls in the basement, okay? We were looking for family names. My dad's middle name was Vernon. Like, I can't do much with that. Uh, Lowell was my grandfather's name. I'm like, okay, girls. Okay, we got girls, okay? But uh, family names was a tradition. And sometimes the word of God and the will of God confront what is customary. And we must evaluate our customs through Scripture, not Scripture through our customs and traditions. And John gets his tablet because they refused Elizabeth all the way to the point of appealing to John. And he gets his tablet and he says, not like Elizabeth, she said, Elizabeth said the child would be called John, but Zechariah says his name is John because God had named this child already. God had named this child already. And when God names a person in Scripture, he has a very special plan for them. This child is from the Lord and to the Lord. And immediately after Zechariah says his name is John and, and his time of discipline is over, immediately the mouth of this righteous man was opened and his tongue was loosed. A woman past childbearing years gives birth and he will not be called by a family name, and now his mute and deaf father is blessing God. And the neighbors and relatives were amazed. And they say, what will this child be? And, and this heightens the miraculous nature surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. And, and many people think when his mouth and his tongue was loosed, and it says in verse 64 that he was blessing God, many think that he busted into this song in 68 through 79 that we will look at in a second. But when his tongue is loose and finally freed, Zechariah complains about his discipline. No. He explodes in worship. Zechariah explodes in worship. He had nine months plus to contemplate all that had happened in the temple. The last words ringing in his ears for those nine months were the, were the words of the angel promising them that he would have a son named John and that God was bringing about the redemption of the world. He had all this time to put together, as we'll see, these prophecies. He's been thinking hard and he made good use of his time in silence. God's surgery of silence and his discipline made Zechariah's heart ready to explode when given the opportunity. And their relatives and neighbors spread the news of these events and wondered or pondered these things in their heart, asking, what will this child be? God's hand is so clearly on him. And, and the Bible keeps emphasizing what John will be. And when it talks about Jesus, it emphasizes who he will be. John's importance was his task. Jesus, his importance is who he is. And we see that as this unfolds. And you could feel the heightening of these events and causing in the, that, are, that it's causing in the people that God is up to something in the world, which leads to number two. 
Only two points today. The sunrise for those who are in darkness give us light and guides their feet in the way of peace. So the astronomical light, twilight had begun. The darkness has been broken with the birth of John the Baptist. And now the Savior will come. And it's like a sunrise to those living in the darkness. And it will shine to the pathway of peace. So verses 67, or 67 through 80, or 67 through 79 are called the Benedictus. And we looked at Mary's Magnificat and just a word about that. The only reason they're called those, because in the, the first word of his song is blessed, and in Latin that's translated Benedictus. Mary's Magnificat is translated in Latin, Mary's Magnificat. So this fun fact about the Bible. It's called his Benedictus. Now, this is perhaps what he said immediately when his tongue was loose, but Zechariah is also answering the question that the people answered in verse 66. What then shall this child be? Well, the answer is found in his prophecy, in in his hymn, in his song. But I want you to see that only two verses are given to John the Baptist, his son, in this song. Verses uh, 76 and 77, the rest of it is about Jesus. So this is about answering the question of 66, but much more. In verse 67, here, where, uh, what does it say? And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Again, I want you to notice the emphasis of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1. I mean, what have we seen so far? What have we seen so far? Zechariah, your son will be filled with the Holy Spirit from Elizabeth's womb. Mary, you're going to conceive a son by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, when Mary walks in with Jesus in her womb, Elizabeth prophesies that Mary, a virgin, is carrying the Lord, by the power of the Spirit. And she proclaims. And then Mary, filled with the Spirit, sings her song. And now, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives this amazing prophecy about his son, but the Savior of the world. And and we need to see that happening in this passage. And again, in this song, we're going to find themes of redemption, covenant, and mercy. And we are speeding now from astronomical twilight to the full sunrise of the coming of the Son of God. Verse 68 and 69, look at them with me. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house, the servant of David. Where does this start? Blessing the Lord, praising God. And this word blessed, it is a common way of starting a word of thanks to God. Listen, Zechariah, and after his nine months, his heart is full and is rejoicing. He is overwhelmed at the goodness of God, and that is a good place for a soul to be. Amen? Overwhelmed with the goodness of God. And blessed be the Lord God of Israel, it says. And God is not the God of Israel only. That would be too small of a thing for the creator of the cosmos. But he is first the God of Israel. Listen to Romans 9.4. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. But through Israel, though it's come to them first, God has brought salvation to the world to the world. And this is what we'll see the first century Christians struggling with, this great mystery of how God could be the God of Israel and now to the nations. That God is creating one people out of Jew and Gentile, and they wrestled with this idea, but he is the savior of all. But it first came through Israel, and, and he blesses the God of Israel. Why does he bless the God of Israel? Why this praise for God? Well, it tells us At the end of verse 68, because he has visited and he has redeemed. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Listen, the 
Listen to what he says. The past tense verbs witness to the fact that the promised time of salvation has come. And don't miss this. Zechariah puts the future work of the Messiah in the past tense. He has redeemed. He has visited. And Zechariah had a revival of spirit because the first time we saw him when he got a message from heaven, he was not believing. And here he's put the future work of the Messiah in the past tense. So Zechariah has had a revival of faith and of his soul in our text today. And the same one who emphatically did not believe is saying that the redemption that God will bring is as good as done. Because God will keep his word. And this word visited, you'll notice that it, it bookends verse 68 and verse 78. This song is bookended by this word visited, emphasizing that God has come near. God has seen the oppression of his people in sin, and he has come near to set them free. We worship a God, Emmanuel, God with us, who has come near. And when he visits, he does not come empty-handed. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. When God sends his son into the world, he doesn't come empty-handed. He's bringing salvation for the world. And, and check out this verse. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Have, did you know, it might sound irreverent if you compare Jesus to an ox, right? That sounds, Jesus, you're like an ox. That makes me nervous inside, right, to say that out loud. But do you know, the Bible compares our great Savior to an ox. Our great Savior could be compared to a mighty ox, which is an ancient symbol of strength. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen a Texas Longhorn, but let's take, it, let's take a field trip, okay? Redemption City afterwards, let's go down to Texas. I don't think we've got to go all the way there to see a Texas Longhorn, but let's take a field trip together. This is a joke, okay? We're not doing this, all right? I'm not going to take away from your Christmas season, but I don't know if you've ever stood next to an ox, but on average, their horns are 5.5 feet long, and that's a young one. They get up to nine feet long. That's putting the horn from the floor to the bottom of the net on both sides. Okay, I can tell you're not impressed. Okay, I have a bull outside. I'm going to bring him in here. I'm going to lock you in and slap him on the rear. Now let's see if you're a little bit more, what's the word? Scared <laughs> of this ox. Uh, tell me, what animal could stand up to 18 feet of horns if he was thrashing and angry? Every creature on earth would run from the strength of this ox. Listen, this is an ancient symbol for strength. And the Messiah here is shown as strong, which is why he mentions the horn. And the horns of an ox in the Old Testament were used, listen to this, all the verses for this, I can't read, but this is, they're used for protection. It's a sign of protection. It is a sign of defeating opponents. This ox, this image is used for a warrior. This symbol is used for a king who saves. Speaking of our Messiah. In Psalm 132, 17, it says, There I will make a horn sprout for David. For those of you who know your Old Testament, you'll know that the prophecy is there'll be a shoot come out of the stump of David, which is talking about Jesus. Now the illustration changes. There's going to be a horn that sprouts and look at the verse. What does it say in verse 69? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This King Jesus, this mighty ox, this mighty Savior is sprouted. And he has, like a mighty warrior, brought salvation to the earth. We, we do not have a weak Savior, Redemption City Church. 
He is a humble one, but he is not weak. And the Bible is screaming, he is strong. And in verse 70, as spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets, and you'll notice this whole song is one sentence, just carrying on about the Savior. As spoken of by the mouth of the holy prophets. And remember, Luke is telling Theophilus to have certainty about the things that have been accomplished among us. And now we're talking about how all of these prophecies are coming true and merging into this one person. Jesus Christ, this mighty ox that has brought salvation, who has visited and redeemed his people. This isn't a new religion, it's a continuation of what the Old Testament has taught, and it's so important for understanding and interpreting the Old Testament. Verse 71 through 74, we'll see that it says that we should be saved, that we should be saved. What's the point of all this? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, and to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that that we're being delivered from the hand of our enemies, so that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So what are the details of this redemption to come? Zechariah gets to this in his song, and the question is, who or what are the enemies that are being referred to here by Zechariah? What was promised? And he mentions Abraham. What was promised to Abraham that's being fulfilled here? If you look back at the, at the covenant made to Abraham, he's promised that I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. Again, your enemies, I will destroy Those who come against you, they're going to be destroyed. There's a continuation here. There's fulfillment here. But also, we are told that every family on earth will be blessed through him. And this is coming true in Jesus Christ. But but here, what we're promised in Genesis 3.15 is, is a promised Savior. What enemies do we really have we, we encounter one. Think with me for a second. Jesus, and we'll get back to that in a second. Jesus spent a lot of time with the disciples, and they didn't get it through their heads what he was there to do. He thought he was going to undo and overthrow the Romans and geo and politically restore Israel to power. And that's his narrow-minded, his small-minded sort of thinking. Jesus has come to bring a cosmic, interdimensional, meaning spiritual and eternal kingdom in mind when he comes. So it's it's hard for me to think that Zechariah had this all worked out, even though the disciples were confused. But let me point you back to the clue. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit when he said these things. And many times when prophets' mouths were filled with the word of God, they even longed to understand what do these things mean? And I believe Zechariah is having one of those moments right now. I believe he would have had it in his mind that geo and politically restoring Israel and overthrowing the Romans would have probably been in his mind. But God had something much bigger in mind. He had bigger enemies in mind. And and let's go to the context for our interpretation. Luke understood this less as a political and nationalistic deliverance from enemies than as the Old Testament metaphorical description of personal salvation from sin and judgment. How will God visit and redeem, purchase with a high price, his people? Well, it must include, according to Zechariah's song, saving them from fear, from unholiness, and from unrighteousness. Look at verse 74 and 75. What, is, what are we being delivered from? We're being delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might serve God. What's keeping us from serving him without fear? What's keeping us from holiness and righteousness? And there's a clue about the foreshadowing of John the Baptist in verse 77 that he will give knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. What enemies 
is our mighty ox, Jesus, visiting us to redeem us from? What is he trying to do? What is he going to do? Think back with me to humanity's first enemy in the Bible. Humanity's first enemy was found in the Garden of Eden asking, did God really say? Did God really say? The temptation gave way to sin that fractured us and the cosmos, ushered in pain, suffering, death, hell, things like slave castles. Israel had national enemies, but they were hoping to get out from under, and the people of the day thought the Messiah would come and do that. But he will do that and more. See, God will overthrow every enemy of his people. If you read Revelation chapter 19, there comes a day where he throws down every king. He throws down every wicked city. He throws down every enemy. That day is coming. But there's more than what he's doing right now. He wants to set us free from fear to serve, to be holy, and to be righteous. This is what this Savior has come to do. And, and our first enemy, he, he could not make us sin, but he could tempt us to. And, and, and our first and worst enemy now is our sin. Satan doesn't have the kind of power to bring you to hell. Only sin brings us to hell. We have an enemy that will destroy us eternally, and, and we need a savior from that. Our greatest enemies are Satan, sin, death, and hell. The horn or strength of our salvation has gone to battle and mightily destroyed their power already, but not fully yet. That is to come. And that is why we should wait for and long for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see that Luke continually, we will look back at this. Again, when we get to these themes, we get to these songs, we hear themes that Luke will return to. So what enemies does Luke see Jesus defeating? We'll see that all throughout the Gospel of Luke. And for, that pur- and for what purpose did the Lord come and save us? That we might serve him without fear. Do you remember the first reason why Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go? Let my people go so that they may serve and worship me. But we need to go back even further. What's the only place in the Bible, the first place in the Bible we see man serving God without fear, without shame, without, with, with, with holiness and righteousness. We see it briefly in Genesis chapter 2. And then all of a sudden, when sin enters the world, there is fear, there is shame, there is no holiness, there is no righteousness. The the greatest enemies Jesus came to destroy is, is the main purpose and the same purpose that God has always had, to dwell with his people, to have a people without fear, in holiness and in righteousness. Ever since Genesis 3, he's been working to this moment where the sun will rise and show our path to a relationship with God without fear, to where holiness and righteousness can be found, which includes the forgiveness of our sins. Listen, this is great news. Christ, listen to what Christ has done and what we're waiting for him to finally bring. Titus 2, 13 to 14, we are waiting For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who is zealous for good works. Listen, Christ has purchased with his own blood a fearless, a holy, and a righteous people. That's what he's doing. To serve him without fear and trembling. That is only found at one source. There's only one source of holiness. There's only one source of righteousness. There's only one source of peace. And this world needs peace. You need peace. Even brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't live our days in peace, do we? Well, the good news is we know the prince of it. And we get to go to him 
through faith in him and ask him freely, O Prince of Peace, will you fill my soul with peace? And for those who have no peace with God, you are invited to come to the Prince of Peace and he will greet you gently and lowly, forgive your sins, and free you to worship and serve him in holiness and in righteousness. Listen, verse 76 and 77, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High God, that you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This verse explains how John prepared the way for Jesus, and it answers the question, who will this child be? Well, he is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. The expression, through the forgiveness of sins, defines the salvation and reveals that Luke understood repentance of sins was John's message, and it was also Jesus's message. Repentance of sins was the message. It's how we become a part of God's eternal kingdom. God, or John, would not save people. No, Man could not, but he would call people to repentance and tell them about the one who can save them. As a new believer in Christ, I've been leaking parts of my story to you. Um, I came to Christ and, and I, uh, I had the same group of friends that were still doing the same things that I couldn't participate in anymore, but I didn't know who else to hang out with, so I would try to hang out with those people, and, and they were confused, like, why aren't you doing these things anymore with us? I'm like, I love Jesus now. That's all I knew to say. And they're like, mm-hmm, okay, looking at me like, you're weird. Like, I, I know, but I love Jesus now. I can't do it. And eventually, I had to step away, and I've shared with you before that I, I was very lonely in that time. I love my mom and dad, uh, but they went to bed at like 8.30. Uh, that's not a time for a college student to go to bed. I needed, I would just be up like, what do I do now? And I prayed for God to send me friends, and, and God did in the body of Christ. But I remember one day when I became stronger in my faith and I could re-enter the scene with some of my friends. They were going to the same old place, someone's house, I knew what they would be doing, so I tried to show up early so that they were sober. Um, but I got there, and they had got ahead of me, and I was just praying for God to allow me to share the gospel and for them to come to faith in Jesus, because uh, I knew that I was no better or no different than them, but God had plucked me from my sin and given me new life in Jesus Christ. And I wanted to share that with them. And I remember being in the basement and trying to talk, and they're all just kind of like, they don't care, and they're not even with me, so I was like, I need to leave, and my friend's mom comes down into the basement, and, and she said, oh, Matt, are you here to save everybody? And I said, no, I'm trying to be careful not to say your name. I said, no, I, I can't save anybody, but I want to show you who can, and that's why I came, and I left. John the Baptist cannot save anyone. But he came to point, this is the way. There is a sunrise from heaven. The path to peace has been shown to all. And so, here we see also how tender, why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. The only reason that salvation is possible is because, Jesus, because God is merciful I wonder how many in here need to hear that right now, that God is merciful. He's tender in mercy. You say, I'm a sinner. God says, come to me, for I am merciful to all who come. You say, but you don't know the, how sinful I am. God says, you don't know how merciful I am. Isn't it such a sweet thing to have a true gospel and a living God that would say, though our sins are many, his mercies are more. Isn't that a sweet message? How tender and loving and strong is our Savior. In verse 78 and verse 79, where, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John prepared the, the way of the Messiah, which is the way of peace. And listen, 
This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 60. Listen to three verses in Isaiah 60, verse 1, 3, and 19. Here's what it says about Jesus. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising, and the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The concluding note here is peace, the God of peace. And I'll never forget, as a 20-year-old kid, I, I had no peace. I had such a burden and a weight on my soul, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I remember September 19th, 2004, when I gave my life to Jesus, that burden came off my back. And I'll never forget this. Um, Peace had filled my heart like I've never known before or since. But I remember after church that Sunday, we got Jimmy John's for lunch. That's a weird random fact that I'm sharing with you, but we did. Uh, My dad was put on NASCAR, which is the worst sport to watch. I'm sorry. Uh, That rivals golf. I'm sorry, Jake. I'm sorry, my friend. It rivals it, and I just remember being utterly bored, but I wasn't paying attention, and I just remember thinking of this profound sense of peace that I found in my soul. This thought kept running through my head, no matter what, I know that I'm going to be okay, because I had been reconciled. I had no peace with God, and now I have peace with God eternally from looking to Christ in faith. A new dawn, a new age of salvation, history has begun. Listen, as we sing and worship in this place, there are no slaves underneath our feet. That all throughout this city this morning, addicts lay unconscious. Parents are screaming at each other in front of children. Abuses of every kind are happening right now. The unborn are unsafe in some wombs in our town. People are getting ready to take their place on the street corner to beg for their next meal. And it goes on and on and on. People are dying without Christ. There is a screaming forevermore in eternity of darkness where there will be no light for God's love, mercy, and salvation. For those dying apart from Christ, they will know only darkness and wrath. God has called us to go tell and love. Listen, we need to tell them that the sunrise from heaven can penetrate all darkness and lead them to peace because we know the prince of it. When God called us to plant this church together, and yes, you, missional partners of Redemption City Church are called with me, to plant this church, and those who are becoming missional partners are called to be missional partners. You're called to plant this church with me. When God planted us, he had the nations in mind, not just our church. Do you understand? When God planted Redemption City Church, he has the nations in mind. And, and I, want you to, I want to beg you to join me in begging God to send missionaries from this place to go and reach the unreached people groups of the world at church planting orientation. I heard from a man named Matt Carter and he used to pastor a church called the Austin Stone in Austin, Texas. During his two decades as the senior pastor, they called and sent 300 missionaries that went to unreached people groups around the world from one local church. Am I staring at any missionaries that are called, that God is calling you to leave this place and take the gospel to the nations. I believe that there are some. And may you ask God to send missionaries from this place to take the knowledge of his glory to the ends of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And listen to me. God has not just called us to Redemption City Church. He has called us to a city. He has called us to Rockford. It's easy just to see this place as home. But God has called you to this city. He's called us to this city to reach it, 
with the glory. Because as we raise our hands and sing, which we should do and which is proper, there are those crying out in their misery with no hope. May we not turn a deaf ear and pretend this is all there is. God has called us to go. And this is why if you were here at my summit message where I cast vision for the year, I I said the most important thing we can do is unify. Because most church plant starts with like a pastor and three families and we're like, we need a church. Let's go get them. Look around you. It's not the situation we're in. The most important thing for the mission is that we unify right now. That we become one. So that we stand on the front line and march together as we go for Rockford and we go for the nations. We are not here to just play church. We have a sunrise from heaven who has shown on humanity the path of peace, the path to forgiveness of sins, the path to serve him without fear and in holiness and in righteousness. We can't put a covering on that light. We need to lift it and let it go and see what God would do in our day. Listen, Kent Hughes in the closing lines of Luke, he says in the closing lines of Luke's First chapter, he describes the birth of Jesus with a haunting metaphor, the sunrise from on high. And the night before the sunrise had been long and dark, but the faithful, bright flashes of hope from God's word assured them that one day the night would end. And we have already, listen, as all of us, apart from Jesus Christ, have stepped through a door of no return because of our sin. And we need, and we are owned and oppressed under the weight of our own sinful condition and nature. And we need light from heaven or only death and wrath remains. I wonder how many in this room are still in that dungeon of their own sin. Don't you know that there's a sunrise penetrating that darkness? Come to the light and find life as as one commentator put it, men are, we're in the darkness of sin and ig- ignorance, dead in trespasses and sins, at war and enmity with God. Christ came to give them the light of the gospel, the light of the spiritual comfort and salvation to purchase peace and to direct them how to walk that they might have peace with God and at last enter his peace. This had happened first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. God had sent Christ, his son, to visit us in our nature, in our nature to die for us so that he could redeem us. I'm going to close with this picture that John Piper deserves credit, but I modified it a little bit. But I would never have thought of this without him. He says, if he he was a painter, and I'm, I'm good for stick figures if you give me some paintbrushes, okay? I love to... Crayola, crayon, you know, draw with my girls. When they say paint daddy, I'm like, okay, here's a stick figure. But if he could paint, and if I could paint, I would love to follow his vision here. Where he said, right next to the manger scene, I would paint this picture, and at the front of the canvas would be as dark as night. And ascending up this hill would be a mighty ox, majestic and powerful and strong. And behind him, on the horizon, sunbeams bursting behind him of a sunrise exploding from the darkness. And on the horn of this mighty ox would be the head of a snake. And under his feet, a crushed body. That is the Christmas story. That the sunrise from heaven has come. And our mighty warrior has visited us and brought redemption to us, that we can serve him without fear, without trembling, in holiness, and in his righteousness, all because Jesus loved us and sought us to save us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reality of this mighty and beautiful story, this true story of your one and only son coming into the world to save sinners like us, 
God, this world is full of darkness. You have spared us in our time for many of the atrocities in human history. We only read about, but Lord, the greatest night, the greatest dungeon is the slavery and oppression of sin, the attack of Satan, sin, death, hell. Hebrews tells us that the world lives in slavery to the fear of death. But Jesus, you are the sunrise. You are the sunrise that shines light into the path of peace. And so, with head bowed and eyes closed, I just want to say, if you're here and you're outside of a relationship with Christ, I want to urge you. I want to urge you to put your faith in him today. I want to urge you to put your faith in him today. Last week we heard, we heard a testimony from the baptismal pool, George, where he read, he thought he was too sinful for God to save him. Do you remember the verses that God used to save him? I want to read them to you now. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the worst, he says, but I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If that's you in here and God's working on your heart, will you just cry out to Jesus and ask him to save you now? He promises, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, he will save you. Won't you do that now? And Christians who are weary in their faith, won't you come to this mighty horn of salvation? He wants to assure your heart and know that his horns have earned your salvation and his horns will now protect you for all of eternity. Christ, you be the glory. Amen.